0: And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, I want to thank all of you out there. Your support has kept us going. If you would like to help us continue to grow, please tell a friend or family member about us. Heck, rip their phone out of their hand and subscribe them to our podcast. (laughs) No, seriously. Another great way to support us is to help us with our costs. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a Patreon member. Head on over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Ohio Mysteries to learn how. When you donate, it will open you up to our extra content. Now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. It's time for a brand new Ohio Mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and researcher, who is an award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi, everybody. Okay, I want you to imagine this plot. It's just after midnight. A dozen men in olive green army fatigues, their heads covered in dark hoods, and each of them carrying a submachine gun, quietly creep through the woods. In their sights, the lights of a busy nightclub known for catering to the wealthy with its poker rooms, top-shelf liquor, and nationally recognized entertainers. At the appointed time, they put their carefully choreographed plan into action. They cut the property's electrified fence. They cut the telephone service. They sweep the grounds, knocking out the on-site security force. Then they storm the club. Inside, the robbers, who are referring to each other by numbers instead of names, pour into the dining room, interrupting a show where 250 patrons sit in evening gowns and tailored suits. One by one, they relieve each of the terrified guests of their cash and jewelry. Their take in today's dollars Is in the millions. Then the masked thieves vanish into the night, never to be identified. Now, that might sound like a sequel to the Ocean's Eleven franchise, but it was a very real heist in Lake County's Willoughby Hills at a swanky playground known as the Mounds Club. So let's get this gangster era thriller going. It's a mystery that has been impenetrable for more than 70 years. It happened on September 29, 1947. That was a couple of years after World War II had ended, and folks, well, at least the very wealthy, we're living the post-war high life. The Mounts Club had opened back in 1930 and soon after fell into the hands of Thomas Blackjack McGinty, a second-generation Irish-American and, in his day, Cleveland's biggest sports and gambling promoter. Not surprisingly, his resume included organized crime. He ran with a group called the Cleveland Gang, and his partners included the likes of Mo Dalitz and Morris Kleinman, some of Cleveland's biggest underworld thugs. The Mounds Club catered to Cleveland's upper crust. Figures of stone lions framed the entrance, and armed security turned away anyone not on the pre-approved patrons list. Inside, the guests found only the best of everything, the best liquor, the best entertainment, the best food. During the war, people often wondered how the kitchen continued to offer steaks and seafood when rations had forced other restaurants to offer meatless options. For many years, the club even closed in the winter because its owners knew that anyone with the kind of money needed for entry to the mounds went to Florida for the season. The club was on Chardon Road in Willoughby Hills. That's just across the border into Lake County, which put it out of the reach of those annoying authorities in Cleveland. Black Jack McGinty had plenty of run-ins with them over some of his Cogga County activity. In Lake County, McGinty found officials less enthusiastic when it came to enforcing gambling and bootlegging laws. The attitude in Lake County was, hey, the people getting taken at the club were out-of-towners, not God-fearing local farmers. Heck, if it weren't for the six-foot-high electrical fence and those big lion figures at the entrance, the club would pass as a prosperous farmhouse. During McGinty's reign, the club was raided one time and one time only, and that was by state liquor agents who burst on the scene only to find that someone, likely an insider, had already alerted the owners. All the gambling equipment was gone, and in its place, a cake with a message written in icing. Welcome, raiders. So... McGinty and his partners probably thought they had little to worry about on September the 29th, 1947. As the evening wore on, the staff prepared for the after midnight show. Servers set their tables with linen. Bartenders arranged bottles of vintage wine that were brought up from the cellar. Card dealers made their way across the street from the boarding houses where they stayed. Bandleader Val Ernie warmed up his musicians on the stage. The club brought in some quality talent, like the singers Sophie Tucker, Lena Horne, and Helen Morgan. And that night, the dining room with its green and yellow decor and plush carpet was packed with a capacity crowd of happy patrons. At 12.15 a.m., the lights dimmed and the floor show began. Singer Mary Healy and her husband, Peter Lynn Hayes, a comedian, were on stage. Mary was impersonating Hildegard, a famous cabaret performer. She worked her way into the audience and proceeded to drag a startled patron from his table when suddenly... A masked man wearing green military fatigues entered the room from the kitchen. He was armed with a machine pistol, what they used to call a German burp gun, and he fired a volley into the ceiling. The audience roared with laughter, figuring it was part of the act. He was quickly followed by three more hooded gang members cradling American submachine guns. This trio brought with them the kitchen staff. They were pushed into the dining room, no one aware that they had already been fleeced of their pocket money. Ted Weems, a nationally renowned band leader who was a guest at the club that night, thought the evening's performance was getting pretty corny. He commented to his companion, I don't know why a good act needs garbage like this. Mary Healy, whose singing had been interrupted, didn't care for the joke either. These intruders were certainly not part of her act. From the stage, she said, I will not go on with the show until the masked people sit down. That's when a gunman leaped onto the stage and waved his machine gun in her face and said, this is a stick-up lady, we're not kidding, and he fired another volley into the ceiling. The audience laughed again, but Mary Healy knew better now. She ran from the stage, found herself a bathroom, and locked herself in for the duration of the holdup. Now, one of the gunmen in the dining room wore a gray felt hat. He seemed to be the leader. He took over, announcing loudly, everybody sit down and nobody will get hurt. One of the robbers walked to the rear of the room, kicked over a tea cart, climbed onto a radiator, and perched there on guard. Right then, six more assailants entered the room, They passed the diners and headed for the door that led to the poker salon. There they lined up the twenty people they found inside. They scooped money from the tills and tables, then led the patrons out into the dining room with the rest. Women were ordered to dump the contents of their purses as the thieves scooped up cash and jewelry. The ladies were also ordered to remove their rings, which were collected in coffee cups. When one woman insisted her diamond ring was stuck, a mobster offered to cut her finger off. The ring was released. Meanwhile, the men dutifully emptied their pockets, then were patted down to verify they had complied. Peter Lind Hayes, the comedian on stage, didn't have a dime on him. As the gunmen approached, He quickly asked another man, who was holding a wad of bills, to give him some. He was afraid if he didn't have money to offer, they'd suspect him of holding out and beat him. The manager, Buck Schaffner, voluntarily emptied his pockets, then opened his coat to show he was unarmed. As one hooded man continued to stare at him, he said, I suppose you want the safe. The hooded man nodded. Schaffner was escorted to the office, where he turned over the weekend's proceeds. Then he was marched back to the dining room. Even the dressing rooms were ransacked, and the coat room was relieved of its fur coats, which were carried out in tablecloths. The whole thing took about an hour. The guy in the gray hat told the crowd, We're leaving now. Don't anyone move for 15 minutes and you'll be okay. The gang had accessed the property from the rear, where the club abutted a wooded area, and they were able to move in close, unseen in their dark uniforms. From there, they moved in military precision, disabling the electric fence and cutting the telephone line. They found and jumped the security guards, bound them, and locked them in a small storage shed. To escape the scene, the thieves jumped into three cars that they stole from the parking lot and drove off. They took a brand-new 1947 Cadillac that had just been purchased by Dr. Mortimer Siegel, a regular guest who probably regretted how he always nabbed an up-front spot for a quick getaway. His car turned up in Cleveland a couple of days later. The Mounds Club operators had no interest in cops snooping around their property, so they never filed a report. Black Jack McGinty himself was out of town. He was watching a show in New York City and was interrupted by a phone call with the news. The only reports of the robbery came from a handful of guests. Most didn't bother, since they'd have to admit to being at the illicit site. Without the club's cooperation, estimates of what the thieves got away with varied greatly, From 200,000 to 450,000. In 2022, that 450,000 estimate would be worth nearly $6 million. Lake County authorities did literally nothing to catch the hoodlums. They didn't put up roadblocks to try and catch the fleeing cars, they didn't even visit the club until the following night some say, to give the staff plenty of time to hide their poker tables and the liquor that they were serving without a state's license. Eighteen hours after the robbery, Assistant County Prosecutor Robert Soles toured the building and announced he'd found no evidence of gaming or liquor on the premises. He said he even sniffed the clean glasses, looking for odors that would give away their contents and found no indication that they had held liquor. Newspapers reported on the lack of official activity in the case. This article from the September 30th Dayton Herald is one example. The lead read, Lake County law officers apparently have reached a dead end today in their curiously half-hearted investigation of the Mounds Club robbery. They were calling it a dead end and it had only been two days. Lake County Sheriff James Maloney told reporters he didn't have a clue as to who had robbed the club and had no idea what to do next, if anything. The sheriff, an octogenarian, was asked by a reporter if he had read the witness statements, to which he responded that he was 82 years old and he needed his sleep. But... That didn't stop people from speculating. The robbery, in some ways, seemed similar to other jobs in Akron and Marion, Ohio, as well as Kansas City and St. Louis. Cleveland police weighed in, since most of the patrons who were robbed lived in their jurisdiction. They speculated the gang might have come from southeastern Ohio, where several racket organizations were based. Delivery men who had been taking goods and services to the club for years said it was pretty clear to them that it was an inside job. The thieves knew what they were doing. One delivery man said, that gang knew the layout of the place better than I do. A few months after the Mounds Club was looted, a similar heist suggested the same gang might have struck again. In April of 1948, six men with Tommy guns held up 40 people at the Continental Club in Chesapeake, a village in Ohio's Lawrence County. They got away with an estimated $100,000, but what really struck a chord was how they seemed to work with flawless precision and have intimate knowledge of the club. Just as with the Mounds Club, The Continental did not want the attention, never called police, and county officials told reporters they had never heard of the incident. It was only made known because some of the individuals who had been robbed shared their story. While the people who hit the Mounds Club were never arrested, federal agents said a source had told them justice had been done. Cleveland syndicate leaders had conducted their own probe, identified the men responsible, and then systematically eliminated them. The last one, according to the tellers of the tale, was shot on a rain-swept Chicago street as he ran from a car that was chasing him down. The days of the Mounds Club were also numbered. Business steadily fell. And national coverage of the robbery had local residents finally applying pressure on those Lake County officials as they sought re-election. Ohio Governor Frank Lausch himself campaigned on a platform that promised to close all Ohio casinos, and he kept his word. In July of 1949, the state put a padlock on the mounds ruling it an unsafe gathering space. Black Jack McGinty appealed the order that closed his club. When he lost, he and his Cleveland gang took Horace Greeley's famous advice and headed west. They poured their money into a new, lucrative enterprise, the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, Nevada. In Ohio, they were criminals, in Vegas, they were entrepreneurs. The Mounds Club building, by the way, is still standing today. It's the La Vera Party Center. We'd like to thank listener Michael Bonanno for suggesting the story to us. Michael runs a Facebook group called Too Late for Autographs, where he shares stories of famous people who are buried in Ohio. Be sure to follow his page for more great Ohio history.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, OhioMysteries.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio
2: Mysteries. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy,